Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. America. Uh, my name is Michael McCray, and I am the founder and um, co-host, co-organizer for the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival. It's the largest uh, conference and festival for whistleblowers on Capitol Hill in, in, in the country. Um, I, you may know me from either the Whistleblower Summit, but then also I was the national spokesperson for the Acorn Eight, which is a, which was a group of whistleblowers who blew the whistle on ACORN and it totally, it, it ultimately involved in the creation and the co-creation of the whistleblower summit. And um, one of the projects that I'm working on now, first, we are continuously trying to expand the, um, the whistleblower summit, encourage new filmmakers. And then we're also working on a passion project that deals with either that essentially a documentary about whistleblowers told from the perspective of whistleblowers. Michael McRae, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And to give this audience a deeper sense of who you are, I'm going to read a little bit from a bio. Of course, this is the internet and things can be wrong, as I always say. So if there's anything that needs correcting, feel free to uh, jump in and correct me. Michael McRae co-founded the International Association of Whistleblowers and is the general counsel for the Federally Employed Women Legal Education Fund, which champions equal employment opportunity he is an active member of the No Fear Coalition, which promotes and supports the passage of the Notification and Federal Employee Anti-Discrimination and Retaliation Act of 2002, which was the first civil rights law of the 21st century. McRae is also the chief organizer for the Whistleblower Summit for Civil and Human Rights, an annual conference that takes place on Capitol Hill. Michael is a 2007 recipient of the No Fear Award in Washington, D.C. In 2008, Michael received statewide recognition for outstanding work in peace and social justice when he was recognized by the Omni Center for Peace, Justice, and Ecology as an Arkansas peace and justice hero in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And Michael, we are going to jump around quite a bit in this conversation, uh, as we tend to do on the Make It podcast, and having spent sort of the last week in the world of Michael McRae and enjoying every bit of it, I'd love to start with the story behind you are not to reason why you are to do or die. That quote that you're talking about was my, my, my first experience for you into whistleblowing. Uh, again, I'm from um, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, small town in central Arkansas, actually, actually in the Arkansas, um, Mississippi River Delta. Um, my hometown had the dubious distinction of being ranked the worst place to live in America, 
two years in a row. We went back to back. And um, <laughs> from there, I had the, I, I grew to love kind of my community and wanted to do things to improve my community. It just so happened that, and I, I say this all the time, that um, my on my way to Wall Street, my governor ran for president and I got to work at the White House. And what wound up happening is when um, Governor Clinton um, won the presidency, I wound up going to Washington and working for the federal government on a White House initiative that was designed to uh, redevelop uh, urban and rural communities. It was called the Federal Empowerment Zones Program, and it was the largest community development, community aid package since Lyndon Johnson's and the uh, Great Society programs. So I literally had found a way to help to redevelop communities like my own, you know, I, and, and, and I had the distinction of getting to travel all across the country and visit the worst places to live in America because those were the communities that needed help. Um, but I was um, really ecstatic. It was one of, it was a, a great experience. Um, back then I was working on a team that kind of reported to the White House. The way the program was structured was it was a White House initiative but it was administered by HUD, um, USDA, and HHS. HHS had the Title 20 funding. HUD, um, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, was in charge of the urban um, empowerment zones. And USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, was over the rural zones. And so we kind of worked together. And if you, re if you recall when um, um, Vice President Al Gore invented the Internet, <laughs> well, I, I was I was on the team that worked with it. And so what we were doing was pioneering uh, new technologies for community development. And so it, it was a, it was a it was a really cool experience up to up to a certain point. Um, that point was I was um, in charge. I was at USDA and again, my, again, my background is finance. Um, I was going to Georgetown Law School at night while I was working for the federal government in the daytime, and I was doing a concurrent JD MBA. So they utilized my skills in terms of the grant application process, and I had the distinction of um, essentially guarding the grants. I was a part of the team that was, I set up the review, the review process, and I was over grant security. Long story short, we wound up in in a situation where um, prior to the final award of a grant, because we had the reviewers and the review teams reviewed it, scored it. We did. It was two rounds of reviews. Um, so we had this very qualitative process and we quantified the scores and we wound up sending them to the um, to the secretary of agriculture's office, I guess, supposedly for a final review. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, um, what wound up happening is Secretary Mike Espy put his thumb on the scale and there was an award that went to uh, an award of $40 million that went to a nonprofit that was in the congressional district that he had just vacated. He was a former congressman from uh, from Mississippi. Um, he was tapped to join to be the secretary of agriculture from, by the Clinton administration. His brother, Henry Espy, was running for his seat, his vacated seat. And um, there was a this grant opportunity um, that essentially got steered to his to that district. Now, I um, when I talk about Mike Espy when people remember Mike Espy, you, we, we think of, you know, he had gotten, 
he, he had his um, slapped on the on the wrist. Uh, he had taken some football tickets and attended, I think, uh, I think like an old Miss football game or some, something that was relatively minor was what we know about him. Is what the public knows about him and that he was forced to resign. Um, what the public doesn't know about it was what I just told you, that there was $40 million steered to a nonprofit um, that was not grant worthy. Um, and that's how I became a whistleblower. Uh, the quote that you just mentioned was when the um, when I saw the the announcements, I immediately went to my supervisor and I was, you know, I guess really kind of young and naive to me, it was it seemed simple. It didn't seem like it was such a great idea to give $40 million to a nonprofit. There's really a new nonprofit that essentially didn't have a checking account. So they didn't have all the financial controls. And it was literally one of the worst, if not the worst grant application that we'd received. Um, but, you know, back then, and this was, um, I guess now we don't really talk about congressional earmarks, but during the nineties, that was part of the way that people stayed in line was um, you got the, the what we call the horse trading in, in politics, um, congressional representatives could steer funding to the districts. Now, in my opinion, one of the, the, the biggest sin that Mike Espy had was that the things that you're allowed to do as a congressman back then, you, you know, accepting a, a ticket to the old Miss game, if you're a congressional representative, is not doesn't violate the rules. Earmarking funding for your district, if you're a congressional representative, does not violate the rules. Once you join the administration, though, once you join the executive branch, these things are prohibited. So mm -hmm. I, re I really think that Mike Espy kind of got caught up in you, you thinking in the old ways and the the ethics of his old position, and not really um, appreciating um, his new position. So that. In a nutshell, that's kind of my position about my question. But to make a long story short, I go to my supervisor and he tells me, uh, he kind of quotes the, the charge of the light brigade. You know, mine is not to reason why mine is but to do or die. And at the time, um, you know, I'm, we're dealing with whistleblowers now and sometimes we talk about conspiracy theories. But if you recall, at the time, there were some mysterious things that were happening in and around the Clinton administration. The um, Vince Foster suicide, the, there was the issue with um, Iran-Contra, and the, there was a strange death in Mena, Arkansas. And it, so at the time, I wasn't, I was, I didn't know whether to laugh or to be, to be afraid or if that was literally a threat. And, um, you know, I kind of write about it and I've talked about it. I've actually written about that uh, in blogs and I'm not sure if I, if I wrote about that in my book, but that's what that refers to. And that's how I became, ultimately, that's how I became a federal whistleblower. And that kind of started this journey that will eventually take us into the discussion about the film festival and some of the subsequent events. But I became a, I became a whistleblower back in the Clinton administration when I reported $40 million worth of waste, fraud, and abuse in the, at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And that changed my life forever. Yeah, I remember watching a documentary in the early 90s called, I want to say it was called The Clinton, The Clinton Files or The Clinton 12 or something like that. It was, it was uh, an indie doc and it basically listed off all the people who were dead and their story in connection to the Clintons in Arkansas. So this was... Mm -hmm. it, this was one of those kind of, 
I think it was written off at the time as like, okay, here's the hit piece from the opposition to try to damage his presidential hopes. Uh, right. You know, you could imagine that, it, you know, it felt very similar to, you know, the stories that came out about Obama before he got elected. Like right. I, I kept seeing these people get online and say, oh, well, Obama's got HIV or, right. um, you know, um, Michelle is actually a man and like, like right. all these things that have, you know, very questionable, right? Like, like, okay, I, we see that you're just trying to keep Obama from getting elected. Uh, that's what I think this documentary got written off it as. Is. But it, mm-hmm. but the difference being that these people are real, in the sense that you could go and research them and document them and 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 go to the library and figure out what really happened and read clippings and if you took the time to do that. It got very scary indeed. So, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, again, that, that was kind of the backstory. And I, I hadn't seen the documentary, but when you're from Arkansas, and again, part of the, how I got there was, you know, you know, Governor Clinton and has been there a number of years, and you kind of hear these stories, and it's just <laughs> that, that one kind of got to me in, in the moment. I was like, wait a minute. Right. Um, so yeah, that 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 was a very yeah that, that was a very chilling experience for me. Explain the concept of the fifth estate. Okay. Well, the um, I think the best way to do that is, in general, Chris, the term whistleblower. We, I mean, we use it now, but um, really, it began being used heavily, roughly in the 1970s, post Watergate, and then also um, with Ralph Nader and the um, consumer, the the auto manufacturing, the the um, Mm-hmm, kind of consumer reports. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's when the term that we use today in the context that we use it today is roughly something that came about in, in, the, in the early 70s. Um, the actual first whistleblower law was passed by the Continental Congress in 1778 on July 30th. Uh, that date is important because now we celebrate National Whistleblower Appreciation Day on that day, and we actually anchor our Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival the week of that day. Um, Why was this important to the Continental Congress? Um, There's a story that I will always mangle, but essentially the first whistleblowers were a group of sailors, um, and we give an award in their honor. It's called the, the Shaw Marvin Award, but essentially there were a group of sailors that had a very bad captain, and they wound up reporting his malfeasance to Congress. Um, they got locked up and wrote letters to Congress. And essentially the way that Congress responded was that they um, passed a law that said that it's the duty of every American citizen to report to Congress wrongdoing by the government at the first instance. Mm-hmm. And so essentially whistleblowing is actually tied to the First Amendment. If when you think about it, the First Amendment protects our ability. People say that, think of it as the public has a right to know, but really it's publishers have a right to publish. But the concept is you have to have these things to constrain the government or else the government or else, you know, we'll evolve into tyranny, which is interesting as to what's going on right now. Right. And so in that we have, of course, you know, 
um, when we talk about the states, the third estate, uh, I'm sorry, the fourth estate, the, the first the first three estates being the government, the executive, and the, the um, courts. The fourth estate is commonly rec- recognized as being the media, the press. And we, I say that the whistleblowers are the fifth estate because really you can't have a free press without news sources and you can't have congressional oversight without government informants. So these are the things, whistleblowers are the things that allow the other states to operate. And so that's why I say that whistleblowers are the fifth estate. Do you know the origin of the term whistleblower? Mm. That is a great question. Um, I have heard that it was um, kind of coined in the vernacular that we use now by Ralph Nader. If you actually look up the word, there was a period of time when they would refer to um, just like whistleblowing is, you know, literally like referees and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the context that we utilize it now, and I think I think maybe the earliest one was probably in the 1960s. Um, there was a blip. But if you look at the if you actually research the term, you'll see that there's this geometric growth from the 70s. But I'm, I can't I can't tell you exactly what that origin, the origin story is for that for that term. I'm always fascinated by the connection between what we understand today and the sort of context in which we live and constructs in which we live today and that connection back in history that started these things. And I don't know if people care anymore. You know, we had a conversation before this uh, uh, for this podcast conversation where we talked about sort of the degradation of, of sort of society's ability to critically think and, and even care about why things are the way they are. But I've always been fascinated by it. I, I actually read last night, just doing some reading and you know, some people go to the club on Saturday night. I stay home and read. Uh, <laughs> There's and, a pandemic, man. You, right. You're a smart guy. <laughs> right. And that, that was fun for me. And I, I just found out the meaning of, of cracker. Like why, why that is a, I think it's probably used as a slur today, even though its origins were quite the opposite. Uh, the, the, the term cracker comes from the Florida and Georgia crackers. And, or what's called a cracker cowboy. And those were these sort of lawless, braggadocious cowboys from Florida and Georgia. And they also, of course, owned slaves and things like that. And, and so it, it had this dual meaning, right? So the- Interesting. I, th- the, I thought that was the crack of the whip. Exactly. So I was, that's exactly right. So there, there, there's a dual meaning. So the word crack comes from Britain it to mean someone who cracks jokes and, and brags on themselves a lot. And it's just like sort of verbose and all that stuff. Uh, but black folks came and the black community came to take it as the sound of the crack of the whip, both on uh, them and on the cattle that they were that they were gathering and, and herding in the wild because they would they would try to gather wild cattle mm-hmm. that didn't belong to anybody and so they were called and that's really the term of cowboys 
came from. So it's really fascinating to connect that to the way that we use it today mm-hmm. and that and that dual meaning. So anyway, that was an aside, but I thought I, w- I would share it because it, well, it's kind of those, It's a good one. I, and again, bringing it back to kind of what we we're just talking about, you know, the um, common usage of the term whistleblower and also the perception of who whistleblowers are. Um, today came from the 70s and really came from Daniel Ellsberg and mm. um, Ralph Nader. Yes. And um, interestingly enough, um, when we segue back to the summit and the film festival, this year we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the, uh, the publishing of the Pentagon Papers. And that was the theme for the summit this year. And we actually got Daniel Ellsberg to be the keynote speaker. Wow. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, we um, we should talk about where people can see that if, if it's if it's possible um, sometime in this conversation. You, you mentioned earlier that your governor got elected president. How did how did your family become associated with the Clintons? Oh wow! Um, interesting. Um, my, well, my mother worked for um, the local university, University of Arkansas, Palm Bluff. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of, <laughs> Chris, man, it's really kind of funny you asked me that. Um, and because of course, she's mom to me. But um, at the time she was um, dean of the, um, dean of the agriculture department. And my mother was one of the renowned, was very much renowned in at USDA for the research and the work. You actually worked in fisheries. And so the local university, APB, had become like a, a what do they call it, a center of, of excellence. And mm-hmm. interestingly enough, my family, her, her sister, my auntie, um, Linda Willis, um, was simultaneously the dean of agriculture at uh, for Prairie View A and M, and so that was, they were the only sister team pair that were deans of ag um, at the same time. I say all of this is that so, in terms of working with the local university, uh, I think I had a cousin that wound up going to um, Girl State, where she met um, the governor. I, I, I really can't place a a finger on the exact time, but because um, Governor Clinton had sincerely done outreach in the African-American community, had African-American advisors that were um, basically enmeshed in the black community. I I can't put a, I can't really point a finger to it, but between knowing the Clintons and more so knowing friends of the Clintons, um, it's, it it feels like it had been all my life, um, or at least all since high school or whatnot. Um, possibly junior high. Um, so my family had a connection to Clinton world if I didn't know him directly. It's kind of how I grew up. And that was part of when the, the team went to Washington, how I got, and then again, I wasn't, you know, I, I was a low man on the total pole. You know, they, they didn't bring me in as, you know, de- deputy administrator. You know, I was a guy that had been a, um, I actually, interestingly enough, as we talk about President Obama, I've been a student organizer because I was in I was in law school there, um, and I wound up. Um, and now that I think about it, you know, the, you know, people didn't know that the Empowerment Zone program was going to work, and so the, a lot of times, what you'll see in federal government when they have details, you know, a lot of times some of the agencies will will release some of their more problematic employees. And it almost became like an island of misfit toys. But you had this cadre of people 
<laughs> they probably weren't the most well-liked in all of their different departments all working together to roll out this very important economic development initiative. And it just so happened that, you know, that was when the internet was booming. I, you know, what we were doing back then, and we were doing, you know, virtual reality tours of the White House. It's 1995, you know, kind of stuff that we're just talking about today. No, not quite with the, the deep fakes, but a lot of that technology stuff and, and the GIS mapping. It, as a matter of fact, it was interesting because it was competitive between the um, HUD and USDA as to who could, who had the best technology. And for a period, because everybody always assumes HUD because everybody thinks of USDA as farmers, you know, substances farming. But actually, we have better technology over at USDA. And I was on the team that was helping to deploy and teach it. So, I, again, I got to go all around the country, you know, then setting up websites, web pages, um, using uh, new technology for community development and community empowerment. So that was, it was very interesting times. Yeah, it reminds me of a, a couple of things, just the birth of the Internet and how to leverage it. Uh, heard the story about uh, George W. Bush having this sort of interactive Internet-based simulation that people could sort of, I guess, go to the White House and do or go to the Capitol and be a part of. And it's immersive and engaging and mm-hmm. it basically puts all of... Uh, all this counterfactual in front of this audience and says, okay, now would you invade Iraq? Would you, mm-hmm. <laughs> would you do, uh, what would you do after the towers were hit and all this stuff? And mm-hmm. you have to decide. And if you make a decision that was different than, <laughs> than George W. Bush made, the simulation says that's the wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Chris, Chris, I I was just about to co-sign with you because at that time they were doing also stuff with the budget. And they were talking about when people think that we have all these these millions and billions of dollars to to spend um, that's discretionary. And really, there's relatively speaking, there's only a small amount, a small sliver, because between the um, entitlement programs and the military, you know, you just you eat up all these trillions of dollars. So I, I, I do recall that that interactive capability. I don't, I don't quite recall the agreeing with George Bush, but uh, I, I'll take you for your, on your word. <laughs> and look, I could be wrong. Somebody, please, if, if you've, t- if you've had that experience and, and you know, better uh, email us and, <laughs> and hit us up on social media and get, you know, get me straight on, on that. Um, but it also reminds me of, of something Dick Gregory used to say, which is, that you know, black people uh, turned Bill Clinton into this sort of ultra black character, and they turned Obama into somebody that wasn't black. And it was like, in his mind, one of the biggest mistakes the black community could could make. And it is kind of fascinating that oh, we can do that, we can we, we can do a whole another show on that one. Yeah, um, we, we, we sort we, of uplifted we really Bill could. Clinton. Huh? <laughs> exactly. I was like, yeah. we we sort of uplifted Bill Clinton and made him a quote unquote you know, brother. And then mm. we said, Oh no, Obama's not black enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're actually two shows there. Chris. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So we, we definitely have to do a round two. Uh, you, you mentioned being part of the acorn eight and mm. reading about this story is absolutely fascinating to me because your whistleblowing efforts dismantled the organization essentially 
that had been around for a long time. And I guess what jumped out to me is this curiosity around how they started. In, in your estimation, did, did Acorn start with a benevolent purpose? Uh, do, do most organizations like this start with a benevolent purpose and then wow. sort of some human come in and say, ooh, uh, I can take advantage of this. And and please share the acronym if, if you'd like. Okay. For, for uh, okay. Well, Chris, you are a great interviewer, man. Um, Thank you. Okay. The acronym for ACORN is the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now, ACORN. It originally was Arkansas Community Organizations for Reform Now, and most people don't know that it was actually founded in Little Rock. Mm. Um it is essentially an offshoot of an organization called the National Welfare Rights Organization that was started by, and I don't want to, this, this is a brother, that was started by, he was a, had a PhD in chemistry. His, I think it's George Wiley. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll double check that, check that for you. And the gentleman who is now accredited with creating ACORN was a lieutenant. Um, for the National World for Rights Organization, his name was Wade Rathke. And the um, the World for Rights Organization was a direct action organization. They're very militant, used the same types of tactics that ACORN did. Um, but somewhere along the line, they decided that the it was better to try to organize the working class than necessarily just people on welfare. Mm-hmm. And so while he sent... Rafke to Arkansas, where he started this project that what became that has become Acorn, and the idea was essentially to organize a broader segment of the community, the working class, not just the um, welfare rights people. In my mind, and it, it, it's very interesting because Wiley was a person that I believe would possibly would have been targeted by COINTELPRO. He winds up disappearing in the 70s. And I, I kind of just, uh, I, I always kind of watch the different information that's released about COINTELPRO. But mm-hmm. it, it was the, that type of organization that would have been on the radar um, of the FBI because of some of the, the, the work and the tactics that they were doing. And so essentially, the Welfare Rights Organization essentially dissipates after the disappearance of Wiley and ACORN becomes stronger. Um, and you're actually what you what you just said, man, is the opening quote to my next book. If I jump back into what am I working on now? Oh, awesome. um, I, I actually do want to tell more in depth the story of Acorn. Um, a couple of years ago, I happened to go to the Hot Springs Documentary Film um, Festival, and I watched this film called um, Acorn in the Firestorm. Mm-hmm. And it was a film by Ruben Atlas that essentially talks about, essentially talks about how wonderful Acorn was and how dastardly Hannah, um, Andrew Breitbart, you know, Hannah Giles, James O'Keefe, the, the fake pimp and, and pro that took down Acorn. And it was interesting to me, Chris, because they tell it from a way that they, that they talk about the manipulated videos, that they were fakes or deep fakes um, or just regular fakes and how the, 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 I don't want to say the genesis, but the conclusion that one draws after watching this documentary was that 
Aquan was wonderful. Hannah Giles and Andrew Breitbart were bad, and they took down this wonderful organization. And there's no mention of the Acorn 8. So during the question and answer period, I asked the guy, it would, uh, the filmmaker wasn't there, but his father, John Atlas, was a producer. And he also is a journalist. And he had actually interviewed the Acorn 8. And the interesting thing about him was he's kind of a, I guess we call him a progressive, but when you, when the people that were talking about Acorn that were really going after Acorn, most of them were from the far right. They were conservative activists. Mm. The Acorn Eight were actually attacking Acorn from the left, saying that it wasn't empowering people, that it was using people. We were essentially useful idiots and that our goal really wasn't to destroy Acorn. It was to reform Acorn. We were trying to save Acorn from itself. Um, things kind of got out of hand, but that, that was what our goal was. So we were true believers fighting for ACORN, fighting for the rights of low and middle and working class people. Um, long story short, I wound up asking this question about, well, why did he leave out the, you know, why did he omit actual ACORN whistleblowers from his documentary? Um, and of course, he kind of poo-pooed it. But it's essentially, he didn't include us because we didn't fit his narrative. And for me, the irony of all of that is he essentially did the same thing that Breitbart did and James O'Keefe. They invented video that basically they told a lie, I guess, of, of commission by making, creating this false perception about Acorn. The Atlas, Atlas and his son, they tell a lie of, of omission by failing to talk about the the whistleblowers and the actual people that were trying to form the organization. So it was, to me, it was the, the juxtaposition of two people arguing about media manipulation using manipulated media would just, which kind of blew me away. But anyway, during the conversation, we find out that there were a lot of people who want to know the story of Acorn, of the Acorn 8. And that's actually a segue into a project that I'm working on. I'm really trying to finish up a book about what really happened and how Acorn really fell um, as a book and then possibly some type of other media, whether it's a documentary or perhaps a feature film. That's an incredible background and, and story. And it, it highlights one of the things I'm really concerned about now. And I do have a journalism background. I, I double majored in journalism and marketing at Middle Tennessee State University. And the the thing that's happening now is corporate journalism and it is so dangerous to that fourth estate, especially in how it can either manipulate or silence or not utilize the fifth estate. And what I mean by corporate journalism is now every journalist is basically an employee of a giant corporate entity. And they're just employees. They're, they're typically the people on the bottom of the totem pole, uh, the lowest paid employees as well in general. And these corporations are now doing, you know, they have quarter by quarter numbers they need to hit uh, based on the market and other factors. And they just look at data and say, well, what got us the most retweets? What got us the most clicks? Okay, let's run more stories like that. And that ends up being the journalism that we get instead of the sort of independent journalism that we need to have a strong fourth estate. Yeah. 
I think you can go back to the Clinton bashing on that one. Um, or whatever, the, whenever that, the Telecommunications Act um, that essentially allowed more corporate control, more corporate ownership of local media companies, the consolidation of the, the press is, I, I blame that for that dynamic. You know, the, the argument against it is, as the internet became more um, widely used, that there theoretically were more voices. So therefore, there were more opportunities, even if they weren't from your local newspaper. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think, I, th- I think we can see now that one, the danger of having using news as a profit center, as opposed to a public service, is is, is devastating. And then the other part is the dumbing down of the population. One. If you don't read your local stories, I mean, people already had a problem with problem with media literacy in general. Mm-hmm. When you take away the local stories, it winds up being replaced by your Facebook feed. And then if you don't have a police or a check on Facebook between the algorithms and these promotions for excitement and clickbait, you know, you're dumbing down society and then you're feeding them garbage. And we wind up in the situation where we are right now with our democracy actually being in jeopardy. Yeah, anyone who's listening that wants to play a fun game and maybe potentially terrifying game, go on Twitter and then um, type in something about Taiwan or Hong Kong or the Uyghurs and then put hashtag China at the end of it. And within uh, six hours, you will be bombarded by Chinese bots just (laughs) fighting you, ready to discredit you, take you down. And it's fascinating uh, how some of this this stuff works. That's Um, scary. Yes. It's scary to me. Yeah, likewise. Uh, Frank Serpico, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, said the most Serpico. Thank you. Frank Serpico said the most expensive gift you can bestow on humanity is to be a lamp lighter whistleblower. You pay for it the rest of your life. Why do we dislike whistleblowers? Wait, I'm sorry, say it again. I said, why do we dislike whistleblowers? Uh, Wow. Uh, Two points. One, um, Frank Serpico, that's, you know, that is the Serpico, the guy that the film's about, the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's interesting that Serpico actually came to one of the the whistleblower conferences, had a chance to meet him. Um, And it's funny to me because Serpico does not like the term whistleblower. He feels it's a moniker, a negative monitor. He he prefers lamplighter. So if you actually have him quoted as actually using the term whistleblower, uh, you know, you got a scoop there. because He he usually doesn't do that. for whatever reason, we've developed this culture where, well, one is, the one reason that people don't like whistleblowers is that we've allowed the definition to essentially become a pejorative. So if you look in, in this, well, wow. Chris, let me do this. Let me, let, me, let me connect kind of my whistleblowing to the summit because that's kind of how you also got the back, you get the backstory to ACORN and then Perfect. also what we're trying to do at the summit to reclaim whistleblowing. Perfect. Um, so essentially, after I blew the whistle on the on during the Clinton administration, it essentially changed my life forever. 
Um, and to make a long story short, what you were hitting on is how devastating it is to you, to you, your career, your family standing. Um, you know, it, it, it's it, it, it's an incredible journey. Uh, I tell people that rock bottom was the firm foundation that I rebuilt my life on. Mm. And the way that I did it was two things happened to me. One, my father gave me a book one Christmas that was the, that was Rick Warren's A Purpose Driven Life. And then two, I attended a whistleblower conference in 2007. Um, the conference was put on um, by a, a coalition of advocacy groups called the Make It Safe Coalition. Then back then it was called uh, Whistleblowers Week in Washington. And for me, I found my tribe. I found a home. I found a place where people actually understood what I was going through. And it was very um, cathartic. It, 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 it may have literally saved my life. It definitely saved my sanity. Um, I was working, then I was working with the No Fear Coalition, which is something that you mentioned. And we, um, during that week, it was a full week. And there was a No Fear Day where we were celebrating the, um, the passage of the No Fear Act. That's kind of how I got involved in the whistleblowing community. So now I had people that actually understood what I was suffering through. Um, one of the things that happened as a result of that, it was so um, so life affirming for me. I actually started to, I decided that I wanted to, to, to continue to keep it going. That's kind of how I got into hosting or co-hosting this, this event. But that's something that whistleblowing, it wasn't necessarily the very first whistleblower conference. There was another group called, um, ah, man, Integrity International that had had a whistleblower event. I think Ralph Nader's group had done one earlier, but whistleblowers did not continuously meet prior to 2007. And we've kind of kept it going since then. Um, we wound up with the, so anyway, so, so I get immersed into the whistleblower community. I become an advocate. Um, we start to have, we create, wind up creating the um, International Association of Whistleblowers. Uh, the reason we kind of did that was early on, different organizations would host the conference and the conference took on the flavor of the organization that hosted it. So if you were a policy group, you spent a lot of time on the Hill doing legislative advocacy, having lobby days. We wanted to start to create an entity that kind of reflected you know, a conference um, for whistleblowers by whistleblowers. Um, and we wound up creating the, um, the International Association of Whistleblowers to mm -hmm. do that. And in the process, we started to have, we continued to do the policy work, but then we also started to have like the um, um, social events. We we would just get together. And really we, we had one night was movie night with the whistleblowers where we'd get together and watch all the president's men, you know, Aaron Brockovich, Serpico, you know, there was a fun way to kind of the whistleblowing. The topic itself is so heavy. We just needed a way to kick back and kind of socialize. Um, and then we were also doing uh, whistleblower book signings. Ultimately, what started to happen then was um, people started to gravitate towards the um, towards the, the social aspects. And so then we thought that, well, hey, well, there, here's an opportunity um, for us to. Um, um, well, hang on. Let me let me put a pin there. Once I became involved in the whistleblower community, other whistleblowers would come to would approach me for help. And mm. that's how I kind of got involved with ACORN and the ACORN 8. Um, Marcel Reed 
was one of the whistleblowers at Acorn. Um, and I had been after I, after I left federal government, I actually went down to Atlanta and was working for a um, for a hotel development, African-American hotel development company. And we purchased a boutique hotel on Peach Peach. Peachtree Street. Um, long story short, ultimately we became a victim of early vic- victim of commercial mortgage fraud, and we went to Acorn for help. And so I wound up becoming a board member of Acorn, and I was working with um, Marcel Reed because uh, we were on the national board together. Essentially, there, there was an embezzlement that was discovered. Um, Marcel becomes a, essentially a whistleblower. She comes to me for help. Um, because I, she knew that I was had been a whistleblower in federal government. She knew that I worked with whistleblowers. And I was connected to that space, and so I was able to kind of guide the Acorn Eight. I was actually the national spokesperson for the Acorn Eight as we kind of navigated that battle. So that that was my connection to her. We ultimately together had decided that we wanted to start to do the conference to continue the uh, whistleblower, what we call now called the Whistleblower Summer. Summit back then when I when the International Association of Whistleblowers had it, it was the Whistleblower Assembly. Um, but one of the interesting things that we noted there was whistleblowing was always kept in the perspective of public health and safety. And and what makes a difference about that is that there are a lot of whistleblowers that don't see civil rights or EEO activity as whistleblowing. They think that to be a whistleblower. Um, that to be a whistleblower, you have to um, work with other people. You have to, let's take Rodney King. Mm-hmm. There are people that will say that the videographer, the person who captured the beatings on film was the whistleblower, but Rodney King wasn't because essentially Rodney King would have been blowing the whistle on something that affected him directly. What we, our position was, is that whistleblowing is, is we've, we started to view whistleblowing through this prism of civil and human rights. And so Marcel and I came up with, we're going to do the, we're going to create the Whistleblower Summit for Civil and Human Rights that would broaden the audience and the attention and just create a, a broader perspective on whistleblowing that was more, more inclusive and wasn't, wouldn't just be the, um, the ivory tower with generally speaking older white men. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the innovations that we made. Um, and then during the process of that, as we started to, to continue with the movie night, um, filmmakers started wanting to come screen the films, screen their films. Well, no, first we had the movie nights and then we decided, well, let's do something more than be social. Let's curate. Let's go find other important films documentary filmmakers that have films that we think are important that aren't being recognized. or And so we decided to try to use our platform to spotlight and highlight other important films and other journalists. And it really worked out very well, Chris. And then what wound up happening is filmmakers started to come to us and say they wanted to, they wanted to screen at the summit. Right. And so long story short, the whistleblower summit uh, for civil and human rights evolves into the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival because we're able to, we started to capture the, we, we captured the policy aspects and advocacy aspects of whistleblowing, but then we also wanted to talk about whistleblowing as it relates to popular culture and pop culture, and that we started to become more successful with it. And ultimately, we wound up building an award-winning festival. We I think we won one of the best, I think a best festival award 
in 2019 from Fest Forms. So that's kind of how the whole the um, that's kind of how the whole um, whistleblower summit, the film festival, was created, and kind of the work that we do. Yeah, and Marcel Reed is still a partner of yours in this, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, we do yeah. this together. So, so such a big, uh, a big contributor, a big part of of your success with this, and. Uh, the Purpose Driven Life you mentioned, and we'll link out to that book in the show notes, has been so influential in everyone's life. And I, I know that your family had been uh, victims of, struck by suicide, and, and you were at that place as well. And this book turned it around for you because, again, going back to the Serpico line, uh, you pay for whistleblowing for the rest of your life, and it can really like you said, take you down to rock bottom in a way that very few people, you know, actually experience. Uh, you mentioned the filmmakers coming to you. That doesn't surprise me at all because filmmakers are hungry for stories that give them a strong why. Like, like mm -hmm. oh, now I'm telling a story that is relatable to me and everyone else in the zeitgeist. It has it has prescience. It, it's it's important to tell right now, and it need, it has urgency to it. Uh, you know, this is legacy building. It's not just storytelling on its own. I guess I'm curious to know from you, having run this festival, uh, do do you know of any retaliation made against independent filmmakers who make whistleblower documentaries and movies? Um. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we'll find that, you know, the whistleblowers themselves face retaliation and sometimes the, um, the, 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 the filmmakers, the journalists um, take on um, retaliation as well, the reporters. Um, it's, it can be everybody in the food chain. As a matter of fact, we um a number of films um, that have received awards um, at the festival were about just that, the, 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 the journalists, um, that were covering stories. Some of these tended to be, I think, more international. Uh, I can't remember the specific films offhand, but no, that, that happens as well. Um, one of the, um, as a matter of fact, interestingly enough, Cheryl Atkinson, um, who does Full Measure now, and, uh, it's, a uh, uh, her, her audience, is very much right now. We honored her with a pillar award when she blew the whistle on um, CBS mm. um, earlier in her career. Um, so yeah, now we you know that 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 happens as well. And then, again, when you start to talk about the corporate ownership of media, I think that opens the door to more retaliation because there is no longer just the poor, the pure journalism or public service motive for journalism now. You, you, like you just said, you, you, you still have to talk to the bean counters. And if there's something that goes against the profit, profit revenue generation, um, you would be susceptible to the same types of uh, retaliation and, 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 and backlash that other whistleblowers are. I, I don't think there may be as much of a stigma Possibly for journalists, because one maybe because you guys already start off with a with a platform, it's harder if you're established. It's it's kind of harder to totally erase you. But um, with whistleblowers, with individual whistleblowers, you know they literally can can wipe you from memory. Yeah, 
you mentioned Rodney King earlier, and I might be getting some of the details wrong, but it's my understanding that the person who shot the video uh, died very shortly after the incident. And because he didn't have a name, because he wasn't the victim, it, almost to no fanfare. And <laughs> it just went by and it it was apparently a car accident, but it was like straight out of like basic instinct or some film mm-hmm. noir where like he has brake failure and careens over the side of a, <laughs> a road. Yeah, we, it, it, it just, it's very suspicious that how he died. And are, are, are you familiar him. with the name Gary Webb? I'm not. Gary Illuminate Webb me. was the reporter um, who reported on Iran Contra broke the story um, you know, with um, Ali North and all of that. They, basically, he broke the story about Iran-Contra. Mm-hmm. And he was found to have committed suicide by shooting himself in the face twice. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but the, the absurdity uh, of it. Yeah, yeah, right. Double tap to the face. Not the temple. <laughs> not, <laughs> he didn't eat a gun. He was shot in the face twice and they ruled it a suicide. Right. And these these are the things and you look at Khashoggi and the way he was brutally murdered. And the thing about Khashoggi that people don't know is that he was somebody, meaning his family was incredibly wealthy and incredibly well intertwined with royalty in multiple countries. So, for example, uh, Khashoggi's uh, cousin, I believe, or I want to say cousin or maybe uncle was the was one of the people that uh, or was the guy that was dating Princess Diana at the time that she w- died. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So Khashoggi's, Khashoggi's not just a journalist. He was somebody mm-hmm. and they did him like that. And this is what makes well, you know, people you, you feel just, You just answered hopeless, the question for me, you know? um, Chris, because I, I always wondered why would you feel safe going to another embassy for whatever documents that you needed for um, to get married? It, it makes more sense to me if he was from a family of influence and he may have thought that that would, that would protect him somehow. Yeah. So I was like, man, that makes, that's the craziest, if, you know what I'm saying? That's the craziest thing in the world. Yep. It's what I tell people all the time. I say, if you're reading a news story, the first question you have to ask is why why were you given this story? Why did they write this? Mm-hmm. And in 2021, with the internet, because of algorithms, you have to ask, why was this story sent to me? Why was it put in front of me? What is it I'm doing on the internet that makes the algorithms know or believe that I would be interested in this kind of story? And then once you ask that question, you can start to critically think about how you might be getting manipulated one way or the right. other. But that first question is evergreen, which is of why all not, the people murdered in the world, why are they covering Khashoggi so heavily? And mm-hmm. the reason why is because he was somebody and mm-hmm. he had connections in uh, the UK, Britain, uh, Egypt, US. And so this was an important figure uh, across the world of, of journalism and, and inter, international politics, uh, for, for, for sure. Um, 
the challenges for independent filmmakers to to create whistleblower films. What what are they saying to you? Like, what is their is it is it getting information? I mean, do they are they using encrypted email or like GPG or like what is the what are the challenges these independent filmmakers are having to overcome to just create the movie that that you've heard on the ground? Yeah, well, Chris, I, I haven't really heard. We're not we're not quite there yet. We're kind of creating this channel and this platform that um, connects whistleblowers to filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're kind of making inroads there. And, and what we, what we try to tell people is we tell, we tell journalists, you, the reason you should come to the whistleblower summit is so that you can find out, you can, you can, you can hear the news, you can learn the news before it's news. Got and it. What we, and what we tell filmmakers is this, there is a reservoir while no matter how bad people treat whistleblowers or how, poorly whistleblowers are thought of everybody loves whistleblower stories. And so we're a place that, where that's fascinating. It's true though. It's so yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, so, so we're, we're repository stories. And, and here's the, here's the other thing, Chris, people don't know the stats, but in by and large, you have a better chance to commit suicide than you have of, of one of your whistleblower case, about 5% of whistleblowers when they're actually when their cases, about 10% of whistleblowers commit suicide. So the odds are really stacked against you, even though the ones that you're going to hear about are the people who won and got the huge recovery and possibly won a reward for their whistleblowing. But by and large, it's a very dangerous road to go go through. And you, the deck is, well, what most whistleblowers think is that the deck is stacked against them. What they don't know is the game is actually rigged. And that's part of what you learn going on this journey. Um, but Every whistleblower I know has an incredible story. Win, lose, or draw, what happened with them, why they did it, what happened with their family, what the you know, what the effects were, what the potential impact was to society. I, I, I've got, I'm friends, man, with some of the some of the people with beautiful souls. They may not have money and wealth, but if they do it right, if they believe in it, they tend to live a life of purpose. And that's what we get with the with, with the with the film communities, with independent filmmakers. Hey, if you guys need real stories that's got real drama and 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 you know the, the the overall story arcs, you know, come to the Whistleblower Summit and you can meet more actual real life whistleblowers. And here's where we we can start to have projects. And so now we've had a, cu- a couple people that have projects that are in development, various stages. Um, where we've made the the matchmaking at the summit, and um, we want to do more of it. Have you been able to measure the impact of documentary films on the whistleblower community? Mm-hmm. Is that is that a place where you guys are at yet, where you're able to say these films are starting to make a difference, either in the number of cases that are being successfully uh, won through the system or even these films and this community uh, driven by the films are, is creating a larger community. Is there any measurement you're using any KPI? Mm, Not like, not in that way. Um, Not in that way. Kind of what, at least what I look at is understanding a lot of times when you blow the whistle, the, the biggest problem that a lot of whistleblowers have is, once you blow the whistle, once the retaliation starts, you know, you've got people that lose, that lose their careers, but 
it's almost there's a period where you're in whistleblower. You can be in whistleblower denial. Like for instance, most people don't start off with the desire to blow the whistle, or they don't wake up one morning and decide that they're going to blow a whistle. Generally speaking, you can become a whistleblower by saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And what happens is you become a threat to the system and the system can start to retaliate against you. Um, and ultimately, a lot of times it's that retaliation that makes you file, quote unquote, blow the whistle because you're really doing it in self-defense. I, I tell a lot of people that uh, when I talk to corporations, bad managers make good employees become whistleblowers. Mm. And, the re- and the reason I say that is this, generally speaking, your whistleblower is not the guy who was on the bubble. He's not the troubled employee that everybody tries to tell you that, oh, they just blew the whistle because they're, they're going to get fired anyway. No, usually the whistleblower is the good employee. He's a true believer. And he believes that he's helping the organization. He thinks that if he points out something wrong, that the organization will fix it and he, will, he may actually be rewarded. So what happens is, he 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 create he has a moment of discovery that the organization wasn't what he thought it was, and depending upon how the managers manage that situation, determines whether he'll become a whistleblower or not. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I look at the Facebook whistleblower scandal that's going on right now, and some of the big news that comes or sort of a satellite around the the, the primary story is well, this whistleblower might be, make a billion dollars right? because the, the fine is going to be multiples of billions of dollars right. so that it impacts uh, the, Facebook. Um, have you have you watched the um, uh, CBS did a series on whistleblowers? I think it was called Whistleblowers. Well, listen, you're a journalist. One of the problems that we have, or I, I think that we have, is that because of journalism standards and ethics, they'll only go to print with whistleblowers, with stories where people were whistleblowers and win their cases. And, and sometimes those cases right. may re- resolve a recovery. Like for one, the guy that blew the whistle on the Swiss bank, um, um, Swiss, the Swiss bank accounts, um, Birkenfield. Mm-hmm. Birkenfield wound up making like a hundred million dollars um, from the recovery. The law firm, you know, picks up $30 million. Mm-hmm. The, at the time that he blew the whistle, that law wasn't on the books. So he blew the whistle without before there was any any opportunity for a recovery like that. Winds up spending, was it seven years in jail? Something like that. Wow. So what, what happens is because the media, the corporations will don't want to, for defamation reasons, they want to show, tell the stories of the whistleblowers who, whose cases were proven in court which means they probably, they may have won money. It creates this false perception that people blow the whistle to make money. Exactly. And that whistleblowers blow the whistle and win their cases. When the other stats I just gave you is, is, is the truth by and large for most, for the majority of whistleblowers. Exactly. And it's so disappointing because the story becomes, right. Oh, you, you tattletailed to right. get rich. Right. And As opposed to save, saving society. Exactly. 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 Yeah. I um I suppose I'd be not doing a very good job if I didn't ask you this question. What, what did Edward Snowden do wrong in his whistleblowing process? Ooh, great, another great question. Um, to me, Edward Snowden is a very, very interesting case 
where you literally, because some people say that that Edward Snowden was a patriot. Some people say that Ed Snowden was a traitor. I personally happen to think that he's both. In one sense, we would not have, if I recall this right, we wouldn't have known about PRISM and the spying of uh, uh, government spying on all the telecommunications um, in America under the, uh, the Patriot Act. We wouldn't have known about all those violations without Edward Snowden's disclosures. And so there was never a chance to even go to court for us to even litigate it, but for Edward Snowden. And so for that disclosure, I think that we, we owe him a debt of thanks and gratitude. I think his subsequent disclosures, and I think they were, they dealt with um, some national security stuff. I can't, I got it. I need to go back over my notes. I think he may have crossed the line there. Um, and then he upstairs the country and you get, it becomes a resident of Russia and all of that. So for me, I think that he started off doing well, doing a public service. I think he took it too far uh, with some of those particular disclosures. That's, that's just my take on it. Yeah. And one of the things I love about your take and your experience in this is that you give people a guide. There's this four-step guide, and I don't know if you've added a fifth or a sixth, but it, one is consult loved ones. So this is this is the guide that Michael has set forth for anyone who wants to blow the whistle and that includes making whistleblowing films before you decide to do it. So step one, consult your loved ones. Number two, seek legal advice early. I think the word early is critical. Three, maintain a detailed record of everything that's going on. And number four, consider working within internal channels. What what does number four mean? If can you clarify number four a little bit for us? Well, it, it, it's part of what you have to do. Sometimes it's the questions are going to become, you know, did you call the tip line? Did you do everything that you were supposed to do? And that, that that's part of really that's a part of the question you just asked about Snowden uh, um, is what are the appropriate channels and part of part of learning um, whatever the internal channels are. And then also with consulting the lawyer, they'll help you understand what other steps need to be taken. And so it, it's it's it goes to the point that you you probably should try to exhaust um, the remedies or that are, or I guess it's don't go public first is is your first step because then it, you look like you're attention seeking then mm-hmm. you may start this 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 ball rolling downhill um, that becomes problematic so um, you know these are things that you really that most people don't really think about and and again. Uh, in all honesty, based on the conversation I just had, this is the ideal way to do it. But again, if you simply make a wrong statement at the wrong time, you can start, you can set an action, um, set in motion, essentially a chain reaction that may wind up forcing your hand anyway. Yeah. When it comes to whistleblowing, it sounds like order of operations is critical. Um, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career and who did they come from? Career advice or advice related to what's more? Uh, Justin, I, I like to broaden it. I like for it to be as broad as possible. So if you've received advice in your life, that's outside of whistleblowing that has stuck with you throughout your life, I would love to hear that and, and who it came from. Well, as well. Let, 
Let, let me stick with whistleblower first because that, that's I'm I'm in whistleblower mode right now. Gotcha. Um, to me, one of the most important um, pieces of advice I've received, and I think that any whistleblower can receive, was given by Tom Devine. He's the legal director of the Government Accountability Project. Mm-hmm. And in one of these, uh, one of our conferences, he said that the whistleblower's ability to survive his ordeal is based on the whistleblower's ability to maintain relationships, to establish and maintain relationships. Mm. And because isolation is the first thing that happens to you. You know, they they attempt to try to cut off your money. Um, You become a pariah at work, possibly at home. Um, Isolation is something that you have to, um, that you have to, to fight against. And that, again, that's the reason that having a community, a support network is so important. But, it's even more important with whistleblowers because I'm not sure that the personality type that's willing to stand alone and blow the whistle. Uh, Marcel and I go back and forth about, is there a certain personality type that blows the whistle or does the whistleblower ordeal ordeal develop certain personality types? But a lot of times you can run into people that will, um, they are so adamant to make a point that they start to lose their ability to effectively work with people. And it, it, it's one example, I, I'm not gonna say the, the advocate's name, but he's such a pit bull against injustice. Um, the problem becomes, you know, you got a pit bull, but you don't necessarily know if he's gonna bite you or the bad guy. And a lot of times we have problems where people really don't work together with inside the camp. So I think that's the single biggest piece of advice that I can give. And what it's really been the, the secret to our success, Marcel and I is what we, I mean, we, we came from ACORN with community organizers. Part of being a community organizer is you have to work with people. And essentially what we decided to do was use what we learned about organizing minority communities to organizing the most unusual community there is, the community of whistleblowers. And that's what the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival Festival represents. That's wonderful. Do you have uh, another piece of advice that you've been given that's stuck with you? Not really. Not, I mean, that, that one was the, was the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I and, think and it, you kind of you kind of went through them with the tips, you know, the documentation, right. um, and then and, and well and, and well and let me say this: the other piece of advice that I that I'll, I'll give that I like to give is one of the problems with being a whistleblower is that a lot of times it's a life changing um, event that people don't necessarily recognize. It's like if you're a medical whistleblower and you blow the whistle on the hospital, you can lose your hospital privileges are you now still a doctor? Or if right. you're a lawyer, you blow the whistle and you become persona non grata with the judges. Are you now really a, an attorney? And so a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with professional whistleblowers, their sense of identity can be, shat- can be shattered based upon the fact that they're no longer in the career that they spent eight years developing and owe $200,000 for. So a lot of times, how do you find yourself? What is yourself, your, your self-identity? How does it, how does it survive your whistleblowing? And a lot of times I, what part of my advice is again, you know, the, the power of your story. 
You know, you may no longer be a doctor. You may now be an author. You may no longer be an attorney. You may now be a filmmaker. You know, I, I try to get people to see that there's a bigger, sometimes the bigger asset is not whether you win or lose your case, but can you tell your story or can you get your story told? That's beautifully, beautifully put. And we haven't touched on it a lot in this conversation. You've been so generous with your time, by the way. But you're not just saying these things could happen. I mean, this has happened to you. you you've you lost your real estate holdings, your funds, your job, your fiance. No, no, no. I, I, I live this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and just wasn't, imagine not, the conversation. The hair club commercial. I'm not just a, a member. <laughs> yeah. or whatever. I'm not just a president. I'm a member. Yeah. That's, no. I, yeah. Yeah. This that, is for real. That That's right. Because I, you know, one of the things that you don't consider or you might not consider uh, if you're hearing this conversation is just because you decided to blow the whistle doesn't mean your wife or fiance or girlfriend or boyfriend decided to. Right. They didn't they didn't sign up to be on this whistleblowing journey with you. And it really right. can cost you some of the most important relationships in your life. Maybe your brother, sister, siblings, friends. Right. Uh, it's a it's a big decision to make. And, and yeah, we, we honor you for that. Yeah, I would say, man, you never blow the whistle alone. Yeah. yeah, you never do. That's absolutely the case. Um, what are the top three whistleblower movies for myself and, and, and this audience to watch? So mm. let's let's finish off the weekend, let's say, and we got three suggestions from you. Uh, what, what are we watching? Um, the one, the um, the most dangerous man in America, uh, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. Um, we actually featured that book. Of course, it's Daniel Ellsberg, the, the anniversary. But that was the uh, that was kind of the the the, the um, gala film um, for the summit this year. That's a very good film. Um, I think you have to go with all the president's men, even though there are certain aspects that are, I'd like to have a conversation with with you about. But I think it really shows, again, you really didn't have the rise of um, kind of investigative journalism. It, it, it tells that story. Uh, those two for sure. Um, and then third, I tend to want to say maybe civil action. And it's because it kind of shows sometimes the absurdity of the legal process or how mm -hmm. things are adjudicated. Um, and I think that's another aspect that essentially, I mean, we, to, to honestly, to be a whistleblower, Chris, you, you, there's a certain level of faith that you have in the system. And while you may think that, you know, you might get screwed around with the agency or whatever that, the, or the corporation that you blow the whistle on, at some point in time, you have to have some faith that either the courts or through the appeal process, that there is some due process that you can get through the courts. And um, oftentimes it's just not the case. And so I think you have, there has to be a film that talks about some of that, the realities of, um, um, of that process. And I think, cause the, the, the line that comes to mind when I said civil action was that was the film with uh, John Travolta and there was a toxic, it was a toxic tort case. And the, the line that, that I'm thinking of, he says that the thing, the funny thing about litigation is you have two guys who, are two parties that are fighting against each other. And the one who comes to their senses first loses. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what our courts are like. <laughs> that is a great line and a 
just a wonderful place to conclude this conversation that I've just sincerely enjoyed. This has been fantastic, Michael. Can, can you tell everybody where they can find you on the internet, find the summit on the internet, find you on social media, and please do share the title of your, your book and, and where we can purchase that as well. Okay. Um, you can find the whistleblower summit is whistleblowersummit.com whistleblowersummit.com. That's where you find the festival. My personal webpage is michaelmccray.net. That's M I C H A E L M C C R A Y.net. Um, the book, the, well, interestingly enough, Chris, I started writing about acorn a while ago when, when it was going on and, I'm not sure how much creative writing that you do, but sometimes your projects kind of take on a life of their own. Mm -hmm. And so I started off wanting to talk about the fall of Acorn, but I realized that people really couldn't understand why we were doing it without kind of the backstory as to why do you get involved with Acorn and then what Acorn truly is. And so the book that I wound up writing 10 years ago is called Acorn 8. Uh, race, Power, and Politics, Memoirs of an Acorn Whistleblower. And it essentially sets up why people join Acorn, what Acorn was supposed to do. And it takes you essentially up into the embezzlement um, that put everything else in the news. The next book that I'm writing that I'm hoping to complete sometime soon, mm, the working title is uh, Chief Organizer. Um, again, Acorn 8 is the book series. Um, and essentially, this is about our quest for truth, uh, truth, transparency, and accountability. It's the book that I was trying to write 10 years ago, but I feel compelled to write now because of kind of what's been going on with Acorn and the firestorm and the the right, uh, the left is trying to re, rebrand that whole episode. Uh, Race, Power, and Politics is available at Amazon. Um, they were books and stores. You can order it from your local bookstore. Uh, you can also go to the Acorn 8 webpage, which is uh, number 8com acornthenumber8.com. Um, and the new book will also be there as well. Oh, and Chris, the, interestingly enough, the point that you were making about Acorn starting off as a, a good organization, something goes wrong. There's a quote that I'm using for the second book that essentially says that all movements start off um, all, I think all causes start off as a movement, become a business, and then evolve into a racket. And wow. that's actually the theme of the book. That is powerful. I love it. And uh, let's end on this. Uh, both both of your parents were professional educators, college professors. Uh, talk about your parents' impact on the development of your own moral and ethical backbone and your courage and persistence and taking on huge institutional organizations in the name of integrity and transparency. Right. Ooh. Um, easily uh, from the introduction of the, the previous conversation, again, my mother was a professor. She became the Dean of Agriculture School of Ag and developed the um, Center of Excellence. And actually there's one in um, fisheries. The other one, the first one that she created though was the USDA Center of Excellence in Regulatory Science. And so one of the things that involved me is that rules and regs have always been a part of my upbringing as part of my dinner table conversation. This may be why I got into law and then also accounting. And 
it made me very much rules oriented. I, I, I understand the regs. I understand what's supposed to happen. And that's part of one of the things that deals with whistleblowers is they are what I found by and large. You know, people try to say that they're either just going to employees trying to avoid, you know, working or whatnot, or that they are somebody who's seeking attention or perhaps a, a reward or bounty. What I've found is that generally they're people that have a strong sense of pride or character and they refuse to be treated as a second class citizen. It's just that when you go to a situation, when you understand the rules, and you understand what's right and wrong. These are people that that just stand up for themselves and refuse to acquiesce. And so that, that that's one thing about learning the rules and understanding the rules. And again, my, my other father, my father's just a very um, he was a math teacher. Uh, computer science major. Um, and I just got, he's just religious and he's steadfast. And so I kind of got a, a sense of integrity from him. Um, and then you kind of put that together with what I got from my mom and you have Michael McCray. Long live the fifth estate because the fifth estate might be our last bastion of hope for freedom of speech and expression and liberty and individual sovereignty. I uh, thank you for hope. Yep. Uh, I thank you for everything you've done. Would love to have a round two and would love to meet you in person for some blackened catfish and old fashioned and a viewing of all the president's men. <laughs> but, Good forward but in, to Chris. Hey, man, you're right over the river from me. That's right. And until then, uh, take care of yourself and um, keep fighting the good fight, brother. Appreciate right. you. Likewise. Take care, man. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F L A M E I N U R H E A R T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.